Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Daniel Walsh, who's a buyer's agent and founder of Your Property, Your Wealth. Now, Daniel started investing at the age of 19 and at 27 had a property portfolio with 19 properties valued at over $4 million. We have a chat to Daniel about his mindset as a youngster and how he got bitten by the property bug. We also do a deep dive into the types of properties that he's chasing and how he does his due diligence, the areas he selects and how he selects properties based on the needs of the portfolio. Daniel's uh, very generous with his information and it's a great interview which I'm sure you'll enjoy. Here's Daniel. Daniel Walsh, thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth. Thanks for having me, Mike. Been looking forward to, to, to catching up with you, Daniel. I'll be following your, your stuff on social for a while. But for people that haven't heard of you, can you tell us who you are and what you specialize in? Yeah, so my name is um, Daniel Walsh and I'm a property investment buyer's agent. So we just specialize in buying investment properties all over Australia in growth areas. So we do a lot of research and a lot of our research comes from in-house. So we don't use anyone else. We actually do our own research to find and uncover growth locations throughout Australia. And give us some dirt on young Daniel. What posters were on the bedroom wall? Uh, for me, I was back back then. I was into surfing and motocross, so it was all about motorbikes and surfing. I'm still into surfing, uh, not so much motorbikes now. I've, I've hurt myself a few times, so um, yeah, more so into the, the surfing and the posters and that on the wall. <laughs> that happens. It's a dangerous occupation with the bikes. Um, how did you get started in property, and what was your first investment, Daniel? Yeah, so I mean, I got started quite young. So I was 16 years old when I actually started. Uh, looking at property investing. So I knew I wanted to be a property investor by the age of 16 years old. It probably came about with my my mum and dad used to flip properties as I was a kid. So I used to do a lot of renovations with my parents, you know, from the age of about five years old, I was running around and my parents were flipping properties and renovating. And I remember, you know, my dad told me that he'd made more money from the flipping of properties and, and buying properties and selling properties than he did uh, in his business. So for me, it was about... Once I started my job at the age of 16, so I left school at uh, the age of 16 years old and I realized at that time that a job would not allow me to become financially free and then I needed to do it a different way. And because my parents had done uh, done it by property, it was sort of natural for me to go into property myself. Um, I studied from the age of 16 years old up to around the age of 19 years old and I was saving in that period so I wasn't earning very much money. I was a, a, an apprentice auto electrician at the time. And as you know, any apprentice, they don't earn very much money. And yeah, it, it's a very, it was, it was one of those, uh, I guess, things that I knew that I had to sacrifice early to be able to do this because I wasn't on a higher wage. And, and I guess in, in the back of my head, I was a little bit fearful that I never went to uni or anything like that. So thinking, will I ever get a high paying job? And so for me, it was like, let's just do the hard yards early. I've got a head start on everyone else that was still at school at that time. So I was working for four years, saved my first deposit, which was $34,000, and I put my deposit down and, and, and actually built a house out near Picton where I lived at the time. Um, it was just a subdivided block, so it wasn't a greenfield area. It was actually subdivided off another house, and we got that for cost price at the time. And I ended up building that whole house, land and uh, house included, for $324,000. Um, and rented it out for 450 a week at the time. So I had a, a, a positive cash flow property straight away. It actually was with the depreciation and everything in there, it was giving me a couple hundred dollars a week. Um, 
And I, at the time, I was only earning probably about five or 600 a week at that time. Uh, so I realized that quite quickly, if I could repeat this a few times, I'd replace my income quite quickly. You've given us a, a whirlwind tour into how you sort of um, started, but I, I'm I'm interested to go back a step. At, at 16, of course, you were following your, your parents, you were bashing around on the hammer doing the renos and your old man's giving you that good sort of property education of this is where the money's potentially to be made, son. But what sort of 16-year-old is talking about becoming financially free? You, you've got to be a little bit unusual in that respect, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, my, my parents even used to think I was unusual <laughs> for things at that. <laughs> With all due respect, Daniel. Of yeah, they, they were. They were. They were even saying to me. I remember I do a lot of stuff in terms of he's doing this quite young, you know. But I guess my my mum and dad instilled into me when I was very young that you needed to to get ahead. You needed to start early, and that you know property was the right way. So for me, it was just all about, I guess. And I just knew straight away I was I was working for my dad as an auto electrician, and to be honest, I hated it. It was good working with my dad, but I just knew that for me, I did not want to be working for forty years. There had to be a better way. And you know, I see a lot of people they they get into a job and they work, and then next minute they have commitments that come up. They've got kids and they've got you know uh, families and all of that. So they they get overcommitted that they can never do what they really want to do in life. And and I never wanted that. So for me, it was like. Before I have these commitments, I'm going to set myself up so I have options for when I have a family and I can do what I want at that time. So I was uh, very fortunate, I guess, to have that mindset very early on. And I had a couple of mentors in my life uh, that that were really early. I mean, my parents were one, had my mortgage broker that he had 21 properties himself. So I guess I was very lucky in that respect to have uh, older people around me that were, I guess, influencing me on, on my direction. Yeah, still an interesting character as a 16-year-old. I had older people around me sort of trying to influence me and, you know, flipping the middle finger. So, congrats congrats on you for, for being weird and, and breaking the mold there. Talk us through that sort of that period from 16 to 19, though. You, you're working as a, a an apprentice auto electrician. You just mentioned, you know, five or 600 bucks a week when you first bought the property, but I'm guessing that took you a couple of years to build up to that. How, how did you maintain the patience for those sort of three years to, to build up your 34k to, to, to get the first property going yeah I mean it was it was tough when I started uh, my very first year's wage was 254 dollars per week um, I used to I used to work Monday to Friday and then I would work a Saturday and my, and my dad would give me twenty dollars cash for the whole day uh, so you know to put that into perspective I guess today most people wouldn't work for twenty dollars a day. Um, but I guess back then every dollar counted for me. So I knew that back then that I wanted a property right or wrong and I wanted to get it as soon as I possibly could. So it was just about saving money. So I did little things like when I was going to TAFE and that I would car ride with another mate. So we would take it in in turn. So I didn't have to spend as much on fuel. I worked with my dad. So I used to make him drive to work every day with me. (laughs) I didn't have to spend money on fuel. Um, Everything, you know, phone bills, they were, I didn't have the latest phone. I had a, an old phone always, you know, and it was just a prepaid and I, I took my own lunch every single day and it was just being about very frugal with your money and, and making sure, I guess, 
looking now, like looking back as well, I guess that taught me some really good money habits because I didn't have much money to play with. So, you know, out of $250 a week, I was saving at least half of that, if not more. And, you know, I was 16 years old, so I'm still living at home, but my, my parents were still charging me board at that time. Um, and they were, I guess they were doing that to really help me in the long run to say, you have to pay bills. And this is what commitments are when you start working. Um, and it, it really just taught me life lessons very early. Yeah, I think that's a pretty solid financial uh, apprenticeship that you that you had there. Talk us through that first property. So you saved up the deposit. What what made you buy a, a block of land and, and build a house? Was was there a, 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 I guess a deal that fell in front of you, or what, did you have sort of a sophisticated view on 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 what you wanted to do? Was it a was it a I guess an accident that it was cash flow positive? What what was your your thinking process there, Daniel? Yeah, so I mean, this was in 2011. So this is after the GFC uh, in Sydney. No one was buying at that time, uh, and I had people even you know telling me when I was buying a property, "Oh, you're going to go broke. You're too young to be buying property. Uh, what are you doing? You know, you're overcommitted. All that type of stuff." So for me, I, I really fell into that property itself. So it was subdivided land. Uh, the land was extremely cheap. So compared to anything else around, there wasn't that much land that was getting released at the time. Um, and I thought to myself, well, I, I did all the numbers and went, okay, I can build this for 320000 Um, Why not build it? And then I went and got a rental appraisal and I thought I'm going to get four fifty. So I did all my numbers before I actually jumped into the property. But I, I worked out that it was going to give me roughly a couple of hundred dollars a week because of the cash flow scenario. So it wasn't that it was, you know, I wanted to be new or secondhand or anything like that. It was just I did the numbers on the deal at that time and it was probably one of the best deals that I'd seen. I'm not for house and land packages and all of that. And that's why I guess I did it on my own. I, I built the house on my own. I did the, the land, everything, the landscaping myself, all for cost price. So it was about, I guess, back then being um, frugal with my money again and, and making sure that I, I, I get the right property for me first time round. Um, I knew that the first property, if I could get that to grow in value and, and get the right property, then that would supercharge me into buying more property, which it, which it did quite quickly. And let's talk about your second investment property. I'm, I'm interested in, in the learning that you took away from that when you, when, when you used the same bank. But can you talk us through what that property was and then talk about those financing issues you're against? Yeah, yeah. So the the property that I bought second, uh, it was actually only a street over from my first one, uh, but it was a, a mortgage sale. So the guy actually in two thousand and eight paid three hundred and ten thousand dollars for the property. Um, in two thousand and twelve, I bought that property off him for three hundred and three thousand. So I actually bought it cheaper than what he did, uh, and only about five years later we doubled our money on it. So he would have been um, kicking himself for that. But what I I guess back then I, I did, again I still didn't have much money, so. I actually had to use my first property as security as my second property. Now, when I bought my first property, I bought that with a 5% deposit. So I'm pretty highly leveraged at this time, but I knew that I was young and that I wanted to, I guess, do well in property and I was willing to take that risk at that time. And I, I had already done the calculations on the cash flow. So I put 5% deposit down on the first property. I, I then that went up in value a bit. I then used it as security for my second property. The second property, uh, I wanted to then buy a third one because they started going up. And what I'd realized at that time, I was with one bank. That, that bank would no longer let me buy any more property. They said I had serviceability issues. So I wanted to move banks at that time. And, and back then, I first uh, was just going to the banker. You know, you go into the bank, you get the loan, you come back out. And 
I went in there and he said, you can't borrow. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to move to a different bank. He said, you can't do that either because we're holding your house as security. So that means that I was stuck. And it actually took me two years. I had to wait for the property prices to grow um, until I could actually get enough equity to release the securitization and be able to move banks. At that time, I realized that I needed to have a, a good broker on my side, which I've now still got him today. And we've been working together for yeah quite a few years now. And he had 21 houses at the time. So I knew that if somebody had 21 houses, they could definitely help me out. And uh, yeah, he's been obviously my mentor as well for now. And um, yeah, we're able to to get into that the, the next property after that, my third and fourth property quite quickly. So I guess it was just that little bit of a road bump at the start. And that really comes down to the importance of having a really good team behind you. And I, I realized that after I made that mistake. With with trying to move banks, was the issue that the the bank that you were trying to move to wouldn't let you sort of have as high an LVR? What was the the, the main reason why um, you, you couldn't move over for those two years? Yeah, so it's because I hadn't gone up enough in value at that time. So I was still you know roughly ninety five percent LVR on that. And I couldn't move banks because it hadn't gone up enough in value at that time. But CBA as well, they I had some cash money on, on hand, but it wasn't enough money. Um, but I was with Commonwealth Bank, but the serviceability at Commonwealth Bank at the time was uh, a lot harder than some other second-tier lenders. So I wanted to go to a second-tier lender with uh, one of my loans and, and release some equity, but they wouldn't let me do that. And I wanted to release the first property, but I, I couldn't get that because the second property was securitization. So um, they wouldn't let me release that property. So for me, it was, I guess, a, a sit back and wait for the property prices to rise, which uh, did significantly over the two-year period, which allowed me to, to get out of that situation quite quickly. Um, I guess I was very fortunate that I was able to, uh, I guess, right that wrong very quickly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess there's a there's a fair amount of luck in that market accelerating as quickly as it did. I'm guessing that was a pretty uh, a pretty tiresome two years waiting because after that happened, your portfolio then expanded pretty rapidly. Can you talk us through how you were able to do that? I'm assuming that you're still on the modest income and and what sort of properties were you chasing? Yeah, so at that time, still on a modest income, I couldn't afford Sydney anymore. Um, That was sort of out the window for me. It was just too highly priced. I couldn't service. So for me, I had to expand my horizons and start looking interstate. So I went into places like Brisbane where I could back, you know, buy a house back in around that $250,000 mark. And I ended up buying three properties in Brisbane at that time. So um, yeah, it was, I guess, looking outside of my own backyard at that time and being able to really get involved into other states and that's when it started to really expand my horizon on that I needed to diversify my portfolio anyway and and that's what I continued doing after that now I want to I want to have a good balance here because we've talked about you you know earning uh, you know 250 odd uh, bucks a week we've talked about you you know expanding your portfolio to three houses in Brisbane straight away I want to keep the balance we don't want to go too too glamorous too early Daniel I want to talk about the pain as and now as a young fella you've smashed through this idea that millennials can't delay gratification they've got to have the newest iPhone and the best car and that sort of stuff but but you had some hurt I want to know about the hurt I want to talk about the baked beans the bomb car i know you're very big on the mindset side of things but can you talk us through your your sort of life in the trenches as it were as as you were sort of kicking things off yeah i mean 
as strong as my mindset was as a young young guy, it was it was quite challenging. You know, you see your your friends out there in brand new cars, and and they were you know leveraged up, getting loans and buying brand new XR6 turbos, and and you wished you could have one. You know, we'd all go out driving on a weekend, and I'm driving a fifteen hundred dollar car at that time, so. It was it was quite challenging back then. I think more so from my peers being that they were out there earning good money. You know, some of them were laborers, so they were earning good money, and I'm an apprentice, and and they were you know in brand new cars, and I guess seemed to be doing a lot better than I was. And I, I just I, I kept coming back to the mindset always of it doesn't matter in ten years time, you're going to be better off by doing this. You know, you need to continue the path. And I was very strict on what I wanted to do. And for me, I already knew my got my my end goal before I even started. So I already had a plan of action that I wanted to achieve and and be able to get those properties under my belt. So I, I always just thought to myself at the start, if I had a property for three hundred grand, it goes to six hundred grand, I've made myself three hundred thousand dollars. And I could do that in a 10-year period. Now, I couldn't save that kind of money. So I'm like, why not? I need to do this, you know, whereas if I bought a car that for $40,000 in five to 10 years' time, it's worth nothing. And I, I knew that. So it was all about having uh, assets that would appreciate over time rather than, uh, you know, liabilities that are going to depreciate over time. So I didn't want to waste my money. And, and for me, I wanted to get to the age of say 30 years old and wanted to go on the holidays and I wanted to live the lifestyle that I always aspire to. But I knew that I had to put roughly 10 to 15 years in place of sacrificing uh, that time. And and for me, I, I guess I just stuck with it. I, I knew the end goal. And I think that's the most important thing is if you want to achieve something, you've got to know your end goal. And if you know your end goal and the why is strong enough, you will continue through that path regardless of how tough it becomes. I think that's some pretty strong advice. And um, I'm repeatedly getting some some questions from younger listeners. And I'm interested if, if there are any resources you can point them to or, or advice for, for people that maybe are picking up what you're, you're putting down but just unsure how to take the next step. Yeah, I mean... In terms of like financial advice or in terms of what to look for? or Yeah, look, look. I think there are a lot of people that are listening that are, that are aspiring investors and, and that they, they do sort of understand that the need to delay the gratification. Um, you've, you've, you've shared some, some videos um, talking about savings, which um, I definitely wanted to, to ask you about because, I mean, there's a, there's a, a podcast title that's going to get some clicks, Why Savers Are Losers. Um, but yeah, look. Talk, talk to us about the sort of financial advice in setting a savings plan and then once once you sort of get that nest egg and you've got that discipline, how do you take the next step? I mean, how do we get to that point where we are enjoying some of the fruits of that? Yeah, I mean, it's always going to be look at the long term. So for me, um, I guess you've got to look at the next 10 to 15 years and you've got to do it over the long term. A lot of people try to get rich and, and young kids, I guess, they're, they're coming out of school and then they're starting their careers. And they're looking for the next get rich quick, you know, crypto and all this stuff that came out. And they're all thinking they're going to be millionaires. And and what I, you know, say to someone is the person that tries to get rich quick ends up going broke even quicker. So you've got to be very careful of what you're doing. Be methodical in what you want to do, and and look at the long term because no one gets gets rich quick. You've got to do it over the long term. In terms of say like financial um, sort of thing, uh, management, financial management, I had. I guess at a young age, what I did was I had two bank accounts. So I had a bank account that was 
for me. Uh, and, and that was my spendings each week. And I would allow my to have, allow myself to have so much in my spendings, but then I would have another bank account and it was with a totally different bank. And that was my savings and it would automatically debit into there. So I'd automatically have money go into there for my savings. And why I did that was because any young person, they want to go out and party and it's very easy to blow all their money and wake up the next day and say, where did it go? Um, whereas if I didn't have a, a card to that, or access to it, and because it was in a different bank, it would actually take me a day to transfer it over. Gives you a lot of time to start thinking about if it's the right choice, whether you want to spend the money or not. So <laughs> I did that from a very young age. I, I used to just transfer uh, all my savings. So I almost basically paid myself first. I paid into my savings first, which was my goal of, of um, obviously buying properties, and then I used uh, whatever was left to go out there and live life at that time, I guess. And I guess when you do it that way, you don't feel guilty about spending that money because you've saved your you've saved first before you've actually spent, and you know exactly what your money management is. So I think just keeping your money management under wraps uh, very early and getting really strict with your budget is is something that you need to do. And that way, you can actually forecast how long it's going to take you to save a deposit because you're saving very diligently and you're saving uh, each week the same amount. So you can then look forward once it becomes obviously to that stage where you want to buy, you know, you, the, the best thing I think these days is we've got buyers agents around and we've got like people like me that now helping other people and, you know, you don't have to go through the 10 years of making mistakes. Now you can actually leverage someone else's knowledge quite quickly. And a lot of these people, even like myself, I give a lot of free advice out there. I've, I've got eBooks out there. I've got videos out there. I do videos daily and, um, so you can be well informed as a property investor these days uh, a lot easier than it was say 10 years ago. That's some fantastic advice. I really like those saving tips and the separate bank account and the idea that what's left you actually can still blow and have have fun. I think that's um, yeah. I, I think that's that's pointing people definitely in the right direction. If we can sort of change, uh, I guess, uh, demographics to the people that uh, maybe have have a couple of properties in the portfolio. I've read a couple of things where you you make your sort of property acquisition purchase based around the the current capabilities of the portfolio and and what it might need or what it might be able to sustain. Can you explain how you sort of select a property based on how it fits within the, the pool of properties? Yeah. So I guess when I look at someone's situation, if it's myself or my clients, what I normally do is I sit down and, and first look at their cash flows and see where their cash flows are, um, it, whether they've got high paying jobs, low paying jobs, whether their lifestyle is quite high or quite low. And that way we can then determine really what sort of property and yield we need for, for one. Um, you know, if you, if you don't have much cash flow each week, well, it's going to make more sense to buy something with higher cash flow so that it doesn't drain your lifestyle. Um, because if you sell out early, well, obviously that's not going to be real good in terms of uh, being able to achieve your goals. So I always look at somebody's or their, the client as a whole. Um, and say, what do they need in their portfolio? If they've already got three or four properties, I would look at the three or four properties, look at which state they're in, look at what type of dwelling they have, and then see what they don't have in their portfolio. So let's say they bought everything in Brisbane right now, and they had three or four properties with really high cash flow, and they earned pretty good money, and and uh, and things were steadily going up for them. I would look at maybe something that's going to be higher capital growth and maybe a little bit lower cash flow because their portfolio could sustain that. So it's all about putting into the portfolio what it doesn't already have. So if you've got really negatively geared properties, well, it doesn't make sense to keep going that way. You want to balance that out with some high cash flow properties and, and I guess, uh, 
on the reverse side of that, if you have uh, really high cash flow properties, you don't want to keep going that way either because you can actually subdue your overall capital growth over the long term. And it's not saying that they're not going to grow because I've had you know my cash flow properties double in six, seven years. But it's about making sure you diversify your portfolio. So if they're in Brisbane, maybe put some in Victoria or maybe in South Australia or New South Wales or wherever you think at that time that the market's growing. So that comes down to obviously research. But it's really about balancing that portfolio overall. I think uh, not too many property investors balance their portfolio. They keep going in one direction. And um, you know if that direction doesn't work out, well, then their whole portfolio doesn't work out. That's a really interesting point because I was going to ask you, you know, is it by necessity that high cash flow properties can't grow or that growth properties have a low cash flow? But you've sort of, um, you've tweaked that a little bit to sort of say, well, okay, well, maybe you've got high cash flow in in southeast Queensland or Brisbane um, and it's doing well in, in, in a growth point of view, but you're missing out on that diversification. And if you went to Melbourne, the yields just aren't necessarily there, but the growth is. is, is am, I, am I putting the right words in your mouth there, Daniel? I mean, to put it an example, we had a client that had three properties in, um, in, in Brisbane themselves. They earned very good money together. They had high cash flow properties. And, and as you would know, Brisbane's steadily gone up, but it hasn't broken any records. Mm. Um, we had some areas in Victoria at the time that I was doing a lot of research on. And I said to them, now, you've already got the cash flow. You've already got the properties in, in Queensland. They wanted to go back to Queensland. They think this is the market to be in. This is a few years, three years ago. And I'm saying to them, that's great, but what happens if Brisbane doesn't grow, which, as we know now, it hasn't taken off. It's done all right, but it hasn't taken off. If they had to put more port, uh, properties there, their portfolio would be lagging a little bit. So what we did at that time was I said, you've got nothing in Victoria, so let's diversify it. Remember, the end goal, we're looking at 15 years. You're doing this for the long term. You want to be putting properties in different markets because different markets grow at different times. So we put them in Victoria at that time. Um, it took us two years to make 65% growth in that market. So. To, to put that into perspective, I guess you made 65% growth and in, in, in uh, Brisbane over that same period, you probably made about 15. Mm, that's yeah, very different very different me- metrics depending on the, the price of entry, I guess. I, I'm, I'm interested in, uh, we're going to have to trot out another uh, cliche. We've done the, you know, growth versus cash flow. I'm going to have to do the houses versus units, but uh, I'm blaming it on you, Daniel, because you actually have said that you're, you're buying houses more than units. Can you, can you run us through the, the rationale and the reasoning for that? Yeah, so it's, it's not that I would never buy a unit or a townhouse or anything like that. What I see is in the current market is we're seeing oversupplying units we're seeing in most markets and we're seeing the same with townhouses. So for me, I would rather buy land because I do know that over the next 10 to 15 years, land is going to become more scarce, right? And they're changing zoning. So as soon as something becomes populated, they change the zoning, they change the height restrictions, and next minute they're, 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 they're whacking up massive towers and there's no end to that. And once they do that, you're going to be in a, you know, a 60 to 80 square meter box and it looks the same as the 50 others that have just been put up. And then it's very hard to rent your property out. And we've seen that happen, obviously, in Sydney and in your Parramatta's and that way you're seeing oversupplier. Now, it does come down to where you select the property, though. So, I mean, there's no use going into Coogee and going, I want a house in Coogee because it's probably not affordable to you. And people are likely to want to live in a unit. So, you, you really go for what's in demand 
not only for resale, but what's in demand for that market for rent. So where I typically buy at the moment is affordable properties, anywhere from 300000 to 500000 roughly. Um, and we're picking anywhere from sort of your, your 15 minutes out of the CBD to an hour out of the CBD roughly at the moment because we're seeing significant growth. And I've, I've actually got examples of where it's beaten blue chip uh, tenfold over the last 20 years. And um, yeah, and, and we always stick to the houses because as population grows, it grows out. And as the population grows out, the land becomes scarce. If you buy 20 minutes out, 30 minutes out, that land is becoming more scarce as people are moving out. And as we know, regardless of what people say, you people want a backyard if they can have it. It's, it's just that they can't have the backyard in Coogee. If they could, they would. Um, so we know that that's going to be in more demand over the next 15 years rather than a townhouse or unit, especially if you're 15, 20 minutes out of a CBD in like Brisbane or something like that. I think that's a, an interesting insight that you're, you're selecting the property type based on what's actually in demand in the area rather than just going houses or units because of the fundamentals of them as a, as a type of stock. That's, that's an interesting one. Um, I want to ask you um, some other things that uh, I've noticed like with the, the properties that you're purchasing or you're showing that you've purchased on your website. Um, they've got a few things in common houses we've talked about. Um, they're all relatively uh, new from what I can see. None of them seem to have terrible yields. I'd say they're probably higher than, than, than average across the country. Um, can you give us an idea about how your sort of due diligence works, um, why, why you think these properties are sort of looking fairly similar from an aesthetic and a fundamental point of view or, or am I just uh, not deeping, uh, digging deep enough? <laughs> I mean, it's just probably the sum that are, that are on the uh, website that we've got plenty of old properties and big blocks and different things. But typically what, we, what we're looking for is obviously your houses. Um, if you buy, it depends on really the client as well and what they're wanting to do with, you know, renovations. And if they don't want renovations, do they want low maintenance? Um, so that comes down to it. With the yield as well, it, it really, you know, your Victoria yields at the moment, we're only getting roughly 4.5% in Victoria. Um, but we're doing different things with that. So we've got a, a property that we just put under contract and it's an old 40-year-old home. We're going to retain the front house. We're going to renovate it. And then we're putting a house. So we're going to build a house down the back of the block. Um, so that's for a different client, you know, the, the, the total cost of that will be roughly a million dollars and, and we're going to see, receive high capital growth over the next 15 years for that. In terms of, I guess, what we do purchase, it, it comes down to really the client and what they need in their portfolio. Like I said, higher cash flow or lower. We always look for buying under market value, which is why we don't, we don't typically buy a lot of property because we can't find that many properties throughout the year. So I stick to working with six clients per month. We're very strict on our six client policy. So if we have more than six, you've got to fall into another month. Um, reason being is we, we're trying to find the best property every month for you. And, uh, you know, you, they don't come up every single day. So we've got one that's a deceased estate and we're about to put an offer on it today and we'll get that roughly $30,000 under market value. So that'll give them an instant equity, but it's also a property that's near water. So we know that the land's going to be scarce there. It's uh, a 2003 build. So we know it's not too much maintenance. It's just your typical paint and carpet. So I guess what you've got to look at as well, people, especially in Queensland, they go for these, you know, old high set Queenslanders, but the maintenance side of things is really high on them. And if you don't do the maintenance, so you're going to have a property that's going to deteriorate very quickly. So for me, I like to stick to brick homes um, unless I'm going to knock it down. So it's always about what's the intent of that property. But if I'm not going to knock it down and I want to hold this for the next 15 years, 
then I want to buy something that's a brick home and a really good solid uh, land contents and something that's going to be in demand for rent. So these brick houses, you know, you might buy a four, two and two or something like that. It's going to be appealing for the families that are living in those types of areas. And that way we're going to receive uh, high demand in rent. And that's why we get high yields, you know, often between sort of five and six and sometimes, you know, up to six and a half percent yields in these types of properties. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of what we do in terms of looking for properties. Uh, but it, it comes down to anything. We you know what do you want to do with that property is really the, the goal before you even buy that property. I want to dive in a little bit more on you, the examples that you've sort of shared. You know, you're, you're normally buying around the 300 to 500K mark, but you, you sort of shared that, that case study of, of someone who's got the house that they're going to sort of subdivide and build on the back. And, and you know, that's, that's maybe a, a million dollar play. Is it the case that there's more money to be made at the higher end of the of the spectrum. I'm I'm guessing that um, there's 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 less competition when we're talking about um, some of these more expensive deals. And and of course, once you sort of if if you're a property developer, once you get past the sort of the three townhouses into the more units, then arguably there are less players and there's more money to be made. Is that a similar thing with property investing? And does that sort of inform the types of deals that you you're looking for if the client's capacity? It really comes down to, I guess, the market in that area. So when we're buying in Victoria, let's say three to four years ago, I was telling people at that time, they see, and to put that into perspective, I guess, Sydney versus in, in Melbourne three or four years ago, I was telling people to stop buying in Sydney three or four years ago. And that's because they were paying a million dollars for a house. So I was looking at that and saying, no, buy affordable. Buy at the moment in Victoria, you can pick up a house for 350 grand with development potential. Um, so we could put the three townhouses or four townhouses on it. Sometimes we could even retain one of the, the houses and put a house at the back. But for 350 grand, I knew the capacity for that to go for 350 up to 700 was easy in the next five to 10 years because people could still afford it. So even if it goes to $700,000, people could still afford it on the incomes in the area, whereas Sydney, they couldn't do that. So it's really about looking at the whole picture and the research and actually, um, so you can be going to be a million dollars, but this is near water in Victoria. It's uh, really considering, a, um, so you can be a house with 650 square meters a block, um, six meter side access for $435,000. It's almost a no brainer that you're going to make money off that, whether you do the development now or whether you DA it and sell the block off later on. Um, or even now there was a lot of different options with that. And even somebody that was wanting something affordable at 435 grand, we could have bought that for that client. And if they didn't have the money to do the development, they could have still sat on that property for the next 15 years and done very, very well out of it. So it's all about looking at the potential of the property. But for me, it's also looking about, can we see this property going from where it is today to doubling and how long will that take? Um, looking at the incomes in the areas and looking at what's happening in neighboring suburbs. So Victoria, where we're buying, there was a neighboring suburb of a $750,000 median house price, and we were buying at $350,000. You could almost see writing on the wall that once the $750,000 becomes unaffordable, it's going to naturally flow onto the suburb with $350,000. And we saw that that uh, those houses go from roughly three fifty to five fifty within a, a two year period, so it was quite quick. <clears throat> I guess that's also another note as well: buying blue chip versus uh, not buying blue chip. I guess uh, in, in quotes where people will think that blue chip will always grow more than something that's not blue chip. I actually debunked that, so I I compared it, and I've got a blog that's coming out on it with the exact addresses and everything. 
and we've got a house in Victoria. We paid $345,000 for it, but in 1998, we, uh, it was worth 91000 So it's gone up six times, whereas uh, we, we did the same uh, analogy with a two-bedroom red brick unit in Coogee on the water, uh, so it's your blue chip property on the water unit in, in Coogee, and that had only gone up 3x. So we that was $315,000 in 1998. That's what it sold for. And it just recently sold for eight twenty five, and that was only a couple of months ago. So we 3x'd, well, that property 3x'd, whereas this other property in Victoria, which was 40 minutes out of the CBD, 6x'd at that time. That's interesting because from the outside, it looks like, well, that Coogee one is a good investment. It's pretty successful. Um, but yeah, obviously, the, the numbers are showing that, that you've, you've beaten that pretty consistently. You, ra- you raise an interesting point with, with, say, incomes versus house prices. It's, a, it's an interesting study when you do look at the sort of Sydney versus uh, Brisbane metrics. Ha- house um, prices are obviously far cheaper in Brisbane. The um, house price to, to income ratios, uh, I mean... Brisbane, you, you, there are a lot of professionals working on similar incomes, or maybe they might be slightly less than than Sydney. But th- there's a there's a lot better affordability. Does that does that is that part of the reason why you're looking to Brisbane, or is that sort of an Australia wide thing? You look at the incomes versus the house price, and you just sort of see where is the obvious way to move. Yeah, I mean. I guess firstly, when we're looking at where we want to purchase, it's going to be state by state first. Um, that that will come down to things like what's the wages, what's the economic growth in the area, what's the interstate migration, what's the population growth, what's um, you know you've got to look at all of these you know I guess metrics before you even start looking in an area. You've got to look at the state and how that state performing. Uh, we've noticed that Brisbane uh, is is lagging behind, and we're, we've seen that it's it's been a market where jobs uh, weren't so great over the last 10 years, but we're also seeing now a lot of infrastructure becoming uh, apparent there and a lot more building, and uh, we're seeing health and education improve over that area. So we're seeing a lot more jobs in that state. So Brisbane itself uh, is, is getting a lot more high-paying jobs, and people are now able to move, which we saw, obviously, the uh, net interstate migration, uh, 15,000 were lost in New South Wales last year and they went to Brisbane or, or other states, but we would say they've probably gone to Brisbane. We're seeing Br- Brisbane actually overtake Victoria in terms of net interstate migration as well. And why we're seeing that is because it's affordable and we're seeing a lot of people saying, you know, what, I, I don't want to have this million dollar mortgage in Sydney anymore. I can go up and live a easier, better lifestyle on very similar money, it might be a little bit less, but very similar money, and I can do this in Brisbane and knock my mortgage down um, and and have half the mortgage instead of. So that's why we started looking to Brisbane. Then we've got to go into more of a micro, I guess, analogy and look look at analysis on uh, why what what area we're going to buy in and why. That comes down to area research that we do roughly twenty pages on each council, um, and it comes down to a select criteria that we look at. So we're looking at things like wages, we're looking at supply and demand, so what's happening in the supply, what's happening on the demand side, we're looking at population growth, we're looking at infrastructure, average annual growth rate. Again, average annual growth rate will not tell you what's going to happen in the future, but it's an indication if it's already grown significantly, why will it stop growing? That's what I ask the question. And if it hasn't grown, why will it start growing? And that's where Brisbane is at the moment. 
It hasn't grown yet very, very much since 2009, yet I'm looking for reasons on why it will grow because it's actually uh, it's, it's behind the eight ball in terms of performance, and we've got to look at will that perform now over the next five to ten years, and that comes down to asking these questions. So we look at days on market, you know, how quick are things selling, vendor discounts, we look at vacancy rates, sales volumes. You've got to paint a picture and you've got to ask these questions. And if you don't know the answers to the questions, you shouldn't be really uh, buying anything because at the end of the day, if you're not an informed investor, you're a speculator. Yeah, look, and there are certainly some informed investors that are doing the work very well and doing great due diligence and understand all of the all of the moving parts of the market. But um, I, I'd encourage people that don't have that confidence to either do the research or, as a beautiful segue here, this sounds like a sponsored segment, but let me be uh, quick to declare that there is no uh, fiduciary interest in the podcast. But you've started your buyer's agency, Your Property, Your Wealth, and um, I'm guessing that that was sort of, I guess, burned on by the fact that you, you've sort of commented in the past you, you could have um, 2x or 3x your results had you had the right team around you from the beginning. Is that, is that a bit of a motivation for, for starting the agency? Yeah, I mean, there was a couple of things for starting the agency. One was, I guess, I yeah, one of them was a, I made a couple of mistakes early on in my investing journey, which actually cost me over a million dollars. Um, and I didn't want other people to make that mistake. And that was a lot on the mindset thing. You know, I had uh, two properties in, in Sydney where one of them I was going to buy and subdivide the back off and the other one I was going to buy in towards Camden Way, which, as you know, both of those areas had doubled in that period of time, seven years. Uh, I actually had contracts on both of the properties and I backed out because I wasn't confident at that time. And that was, you know, I was only 21 or 22 at the time when I started doing that. But I backed out of those two deals, which cost me, if I had a subdivider, it would have cost me a million, 1.5 million in terms of equity gain. And I, I look at that and I think the reason why I didn't go ahead with those is because I didn't have a mentor uh, at that time, a strong enough mentor to keep me on my track and why. And I was, and it wasn't that I didn't want to achieve it. It was the fact that I was just a little bit scared. You know, I was at that time the only one that had bought these properties and had leveraged myself up and, and I wanted to be, I guess, doing it in a way that was safe. And I was kept sort of coming back. Am, am I doing this in a safe way? Am I doing it in a safe way? And I guess I talked myself out of it. So I, I cost myself some money uh, in that in that respect. But the other thing as well was when I started my buyer's agency, there was so many people out there at the time spruiking property and, and people getting stung. Um, and, you know, someone was getting a kickback of thirty or $40,000 from a developer and all that type of stuff. And I could see it happening even with friends. You know, they're talking to me and saying, "Oh, I've got this, you know, nice property here that somebody's, uh, you know, financial advisor or someone's come to me about." And and I realized I'm like, that property's not going to make any money. It's actually gonna, you're going to lose. You know, you're you're paying well over what it's worth. So I realized at that time I sort of had a duty of care to to start teaching investors the right way. And and that was just the way that I had achieved my success at that time. So. I really wanted to give back and that's why I give a lot of free content out there. I talk to a lot of people on my Instagram. Um, I give a lot of value. I did a 40-minute live last week on uh, just answering questions. And I do that because I know that if I can answer a question and stop somebody um, going to a property spruker, well, then I've done my job. So really, it was about helping clients be more informed before they make a decision on buying a property. Love it. And we talked about 
the pain and and some of the success where where are you in your journey at the moment daniel uh, are you still at the sort of you know keeping frugal and putting the resources into into property or are you enjoying some of the spoils where where are you on the journey at the moment yeah i mean the last 2 years probably not um i'm still i've i've still been buying property i bought a property last year but i've got nine properties at the moment my my position's a little bit different i guess these days i'm not highly leveraged or anymore um, so I, I've roughly got four million in property with a two million dollar equity stake. So I'm only fifty percent LVR. Um, I've got passive income from those properties that I now pays for the immediate expenses. So it's not a huge amount, but it does pay for all my immediate expenses. So I do get to go on a lot more holidays. You know, I, I probably spend now roughly eight weeks a year on holidays, um, and I guess it's it, I've done the hard yards to to do that. So, you know, last year I went to the Maldives and I, I've been, I go to Bali every year. I, I, I go camping a lot. I'm going next week uh, or tomorrow, actually, I'm going camping for a week and a half. And I guess it's now about enjoying a little bit because you need to enjoy your hard work at some point. Um, and it's not that you don't want to keep working hard. It's just that to keep you on the right path, you need to enjoy it at some point. Um, and if you don't do that, then you'll fall off the, the bandwagon, I guess, and, and start to derail yourself because you're working just so hard at a plan that you're never going to see the fruits of your labor. So now I'm sort of enjoying it a little bit more. Um, and I guess my portfolio is in a position where I've already built the immediate portfolio. So my accumulation phase has slowed down. Um, and now I'm just doing it safely and just continue to increase my cash flow. Nice, and that's a pretty uh, pretty handy LVR too. I would have assumed it would be a lot higher. So you're you're sitting pretty comfy there. Um, the Bali trips, the camping, the Maldives, nice work if you can get it, mate. Um, there'll be a few people listening that'll say, uh, "I'll have what he's happy having." Um, how do they get in t- touch with you to find out some more info or to yourself, Daniel? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if they want to send uh, send us an email, they can send me a direct email, which is Daniel at ypyw.com.au. Um, but also, I guess for people listening, if they want to get educated and they want to you know, listen a bit more about what I do, um, jump on our Facebook page, Your Property, Your Wealth, or Instagram, Your Property, Your Wealth, and even my, my personal Instagram, which is um, Daniel Walsh underscore YPYW. And I give a lot of information out on all those platforms. So, you know, they can get in, in touch there. And if they want to download, I've got an ebook out there, which is zero to 3.5 million in six years. Um, I've got that on our website as well. At the top, they can download that, and it's a 50 pages worth of uh, content that I've really condensed over the last 10 years of my investing journey. I condensed it down to an ebook into 50 pages, so people can have a read of that and I guess uh, see if what I do resonates with them. Beautiful, love it, mate. Thank you for for sharing that information. And just to sort of uh, to 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 bookend us, um, if there's one piece of advice that you could impart to property investors, if you had to sort of cut it down to one, what would it be? Investing is ninety percent mindset, and if you do not have a strong mindset, you won't become a, a successful investor. So you have to uh, have the mindset because. Everyone can earn, you know, the same amount of wages, but it's it's it comes down to the mindset and what you do with it. So, uh, having a strong mindset's definitely up there. Beautiful, I love it, Danny. Thank you very much for being so generous with your time and 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 humble with uh, the the things that you've got wrong and and sharing the success as well. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure. No worries. Thanks, Mike, and thanks for having me on the show as well. It's been uh, great talking to you. Awesome. Cheers, mate. Go pack the tent.